No matter how we fill in that blank, there is hope. Because of what happened on that day so many years ago, there is hope. We tell the story and we have this chance to kind of stop and, and relive the story, to rehearse the story of Easter. But it begins at the beginning. With a God who created everything that is, everything in the heavens and the earth. And we find in, in the beginning, he created these families, this, this family called humanity, and a family in heaven. And this family was created to enjoy and be enjoyed, to thrive in the midst of everything that was good and wonderful and beautiful. But in the midst of that... There's a story that gets written that is the story of humanity, but it's your story and it's my story as well. There comes this moment when we begin to think that maybe we know better. The circumstances of life get dark and it feels like life is falling apart. The fires that are raging get a little hotter and a little higher than we think we can bear. The waters, the floods that rise seem like they're going to overtake us and that there's no way out. And in those moments, we decide that maybe we do know better and that we better find a way out of the fire. We better find a way to swim. We better figure this out. And we start to take life into our own hands. It's no longer something to be enjoyed. The one who created us is no longer someone to be trusted, but feared. And we find that in Genesis chapter 3 through 10, there's this rebellion that brews, both in heaven and on earth. And we take things into our own hands, and we begin to try to figure out our own path, and we begin to make our, our own rules. And these forces break into creation and begin to animate the things we worship, the things that motivate us all across humanity, things like greed and lust and the power. And when we begin to, to bow to these idols, it divides us. It breaks us. It generates hatred and fear of one another, violence and the need to control and have and manipulate until all we're left with is brokenness, pain, disappointment, and striving, and shame. Maybe more than anything that unites us as human beings is our experience of shame, our fear that we're not good enough to be included, that there is something about us that makes us worthy of rejection. And yet from the very beginning of our rebellion, if you will, our rejection of our creation, there is a God who kept trying to get our attention, 
who has continued to try to, to make a pathway forward, to bring us back together, to show us love and give us hope and life that is greater than our fear or what we can control or what we can accumulate. And over and over again, we reject him and walk ourselves back into slavery. Whether it's Israel in Egypt or the people of God in exile or our chains of addiction and fear and disappointment and manipulation and control. We find ourselves bound up by what the Bible calls sin, brokenness. Evil. And then there's Jesus, the one who is both fully God and fully man, who walks our road, who knows our pain, our temptation, our struggle, who sees the very powers of evil all around us, who knows what it is to live in a world dominated by the need for more and more power, for more and more stuff. For more and more sex. And that those things have driven this, this society forward. And he steps into that with a message of hope. That this is not what humanity has to be. That this is not how we have to live. And on the cross, he takes the brunt and all of the force of all of the powers of evil and consequence of sin. In Colossians 2.15, it says that he takes on the powers and principalities of this world and puts them to shame at the cross. When he takes the full force of all that they have to offer, and it kills him. Believe it on that Dark Saturday. We call it the hallows of hell. The harrowing of hell. That he descended into hell and rescued anyone who wanted to be rescued. There's a psalm. It says, open the gates. And the call back is, who says? And the answer, the king of all heaven and earth. See, these powers in rebellion in heaven had taken this animating force of idols and competing authorities in our world. Other gods, if you would. They destroy life instead of bring life. They claimed parts of creation. And then there is Jesus. Who in his death takes everything they have to offer. And in his resurrection, what we celebrate today. That he rose from the grave. That death did not own him. That sin could not conquer him. That he overcame all of those powers. All of those gods. All that is evil. And reclaimed all of heaven and earth. That he is named the king of everything. That's why we sing what we say. He is that king of glory that's come to set us free, to give back to us our humanity. You see, Easter, the story of this good news of new life that is possible, is about more than your piddly sins being forgiven. It's about more than you feeling good about yourself. It's about, it's about more than you getting to heaven after you die. 
You see, he was giving us back our humanity. He was giving us back and redeeming all of creation as his. And he is inviting us into this story, into this life, into this possibility that says, this is what I made you for. Will you enjoy it? Will you live into it? It's about so much more than whether or not you're a good or bad person or whether you've got little sins and things in your life. It's about you being who you were created to be and all of us being the humanity that we were created to be. One that is not marked and defined by our greed or our fear, that is not marked by our lust that is not marked by our need for power in our families or in nations, that it is marked by a sacrificial love for one another. So the good news is that there is a God who loves us. You know, to be honest, we're weird in church. Right? Let's just own that for a minute. We, can, we, can we say that? Like, like it's weird. We talk about things and we use words that people don't, don't use any other time. We talk about Resurrection Sunday. What does that mean? Like everybody's coming out of the graves? Like we, we, we talk and we're like, he is risen. He is risen indeed. You don't sound strange at all walking down the street saying that. <laughs> mm, not at all. Somebody was told me they were on a run this morning, and they, they heard somebody kind of shout something, and they couldn't tell what they really said, and so they just said good morning back, and they realized afterwards, they're like, they just said he has risen to me. We're strange. We talk about strange things. My favorite weird word that Chris uses is fellowship. Like, come for some fun in fellowship. What does that even mean? <laughs> like, I think of Lord of the Rings and, like, some adventure to the fire pit. Like, I, I mean, we're strange. So, I mean, so, so, so often I try to find, like, not churchy ways of saying things and kind of taking the spiritualized language out because we've got this, we've got this truth in this story of, of how everything is created by God and is created in goodness, for goodness. That when he creates humanity, it's very good. But I don't know about you, but my experience of humanity is not typically very good. And, and yet there is this brokenness throughout the story. And, and the thing that seems to be true over and over again is that God refuses to abandon us to our brokenness. And he keeps reaching in, keeps trying to show us a pathway until ultimately he sends us himself. He becomes one of us, takes on our death and overcomes it in resurrection and says, look, there's another way. You you may end up costing your life in the process, but there's another way. There's another way to be human. And it's not marked by the things that mark your societies and your cultures all around you. It's marked by love. It's marked by my presence in you and with you and for you. So we've been trying to find some not churchy ways of talking about this the last couple of weeks. And the best not churchy image or metaphor we could, we could think of was tattoos, right? Like, so I was talking to somebody this week, like, you, you talking to, you're doing a series called Inked? I said, yeah. They go, well, what about the people in your church who don't think Christians should have tattoos? I said, they're not in my church. <laughs> Because it's just not. I mean, I mean, if if that's the way you feel, like, I love you, 
But God had tattoos. Uh, has tattoos. Isaiah 49, 16. Your name, in fact, is tattooed. So you may think you're not supposed to have them, but your name is tattooed on his hands. Your name is etched, engraved on the palm of God's hand. Now, I, I, uh, I've told some of the stories of my tattoos, but I've got my family's names on my arm. They're mine. Not mine like I own them and they do what I say, but they're mine like I am responsible and I, they, I belong to them as much as they belong to me. We are together and everything I do will be for their good. There's nothing I won't lay down for them. There's nothing I won't give for them. They are mine. And you are his. On God's hands. And so we've been talking about some tattoos. And we looked at Isaiah chapter 43. If you have your Bibles or your phones or whatever you can turn there. It's in the Old Testament, in the second half of the Old Testament, after the book of Psalms. If you get to the middle and start working your way back, you'll find it. We're in the 43rd chapter, and beginning at verse 1, we find the words of the prophet Isaiah. So, that's even strange to say, like, there's, the book of Isaiah is like the words of three different prophets who go by the name Isaiah, smashed into one book. And the, the chapter we're reading in chapter 43, it's, it's written, it's spoken just before God's people go into exile. So, so they have been rescued from Egypt, right? They've been saved and then given this promised land, this good land. Like the metaphor is flowing with milk and honey, everything you could want. And as they're in this land, they hit one of those times again when it seems like the flames and the floods are too high and they try to figure out themselves. They, they go after these other gods of, of greed and lust and power. And so Yahweh, the God of Israel, he, he allows them to be conquered. He allows them to suffer. Doesn't say that he causes the suffering or brings the suffering, but have you ever figured out that your greatest growth as a person, greatest growth spiritually, usually happens in connection to your worst times? So, like, if I could have a pastor of, of, of spiritual growth, their job would just be to go around and cause problems, right? Because that's what produces growth in us. But then I realized I don't need to hire somebody to do that. Life does it itself. I did just have a couple people offer with a nod, <laughs> like, point at themselves. Yeah. Several of you are like, I like that job. We don't need anybody with that job because that's a part of life. We suffer. We struggle. And sometimes when we get into those struggles... And the reason we turn away from him in those times is because we feel like he's abandoned us. Like, God, why am I having all of this trouble? And the truth is you're having all of this trouble because you're breathing. Right? The only people who don't have trouble are the dead people. If you are alive, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have fires. You're going to have flood. The river's going to come. It's going to be tough. It's not a sign that God has abandoned you. It's a sign that you're still breathing and that he's with you. And so then to this moment, as they're about to be carried off into exile, and everything they know is destroyed, and they're going to be, they're going to be exiles, refugees, this is what the prophet says. In verse 1 of chapter 43, he says this, But now this is what the Lord, your God, says to you. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, I have rescued you. I've called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. 
When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So we said that tattoos are marks on our skin that reveal something about who we are, about what we care about, about what matters to us. And in, even if we don't ever tell the story to anyone else, they mean something for us. They mean something for us. They tell people, they tell us who we are, they remind us of something that matters, remind us of something that we've overcome. They, they, they mark our identity. And what we find in this passage is that there are, there are four things that God has marked on our souls. He has inked on our souls from before we were us that are meant to tell us who we are. In spite of everything that we have done or everything been done to us, in spite of every failure and disappointment, every circumstance, every rebellion, all of it. In spite of all of it, at the core, there are truths about us that are inked on our very souls. We said that the very first one is this, you are mine. I created you, I have been forming you, I have rescued you and I've invited you into my family, you are mine. You are a part of my family. And that no matter what's happened in our life that seems to have, have covered that tattoo up, covered that ink up, no matter what we've done that we feel like has, has made that no longer true of us, the ink always bleeds through. And those moments, usually in the darkest of nights, in the deepest of pain, when the fires are raging, we can hear the voice of God whisper to our souls, you are mine. I've got you. And that's where that second one comes in. He says that when the waters rage, when the rivers are flowing, when the fires seem like they're going to consume you, I will be with you. I will be with you. One of the tattoos that Nina and I both have is, is the reference Joshua 1.9. Joshua 1.9. It's on the wall actually over there. But um, it's one of this verse for our family. It, it, was, it was God's words to Joshua as they were about to enter into the promised land. They've been waiting for 40 years. They're about to enter the promised land. He says, don't be afraid. Have courage. You don't have to be discouraged. I've got you. I'll be with you wherever you go. I'll be with you wherever you go. And there's something about his presence that brings us peace. There's something about his presence that recognizes that this will not end us. That no matter what we go through, he has gone through it. That even the very worst of things, the grave itself, he has overcome. So we can face anything because he is with us. And he says to you, and he is etched and inked on our souls, I will be with you. 
I will be with you in the rivers, in the fire, in the flood, through every struggle and temptation and disappointment and frustration, through every wound and pain, I will be with you. And the third tattoo that we get to today in Isaiah chapter 43 verse 4 is this, I love you. I love you. I love you. It's kind of a revolutionary idea in Scripture. God loving humanity. God scaring humanity. God using humanity. God manipulating humanity. All common thoughts throughout different cultures. God loving humanity. It's so strange that the, the Greek word used for love throughout the New Testament, the love that God has for humanity is agape. And maybe you're familiar with that. But it's used almost nowhere else in Greek literature except in reference to God and Jesus. It was almost unused before the time of the New Testament. It is this image of sacrificial love that's whole root and existence depends not on the beloved, but on the one who is loving. Everything needed for the continuation of this love exists in the one who is loving, not the beloved. It's very different from the way we love one another. Because there is no unfaithfulness, no betrayal, no hurt, no wound that can cause this love to end. The love we know, even, even in marriage, is often finds its end in unfaithfulness. It's often dependent on the, on the behavior and attitudes and character of the beloved. But when God loves us, there is nothing we can do to be unloved. There is no failure, no circumstance, no loss, no pain, no unfaithfulness, no sin, no disappointment. No struggle, no temptation, nothing you are or ever do or could face ends his love for you. He loves you. The God of all creation, the one who created you, the one who formed you, the one who has rescued you, the one who invites you in, the one who has been with you since before you were you, loves you. And because he loves you, there is hope. There is hope in everything we face, in every loss, in every pain, in every situation, every struggle, every battle. There is hope because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you in a way that he chose to save you instead of himself. When we look back on this week past, that last week of Jesus' life, one of the critical moments happens in the garden. called the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there and he's praying. He's asked his disciples to pray with him, but they're too tired, so they fall asleep. And he's praying, and it says that the agony in his prayer is so deep that the very life is draining from him. His sweat is like blood. And he is, he's struggling and agonizing in prayer. He's praying that God would find some way other than his death to save humanity. Anyway, he's asking, he says, God, could you take this cup from me? We find him later saying that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down by my choice. In John 15, 13, he tells us that there is no love greater than the love of a friend who's willing to lay down their life. 
When Jesus could have chosen to save himself, he chose to save humanity. He chose to offer us another way. He chose to take all the power, all of the results, all of the consequences of all of the evil in creation upon himself. So that we could have a pathway to freedom. True love will set us truly free. And only true love. You see this love from God. It's, it's so very different. It creates a freedom for us. A freedom to be who we were created to be. That we can't come into any other way. It's a, it's a freedom that sets us free. To love others in the same way. You see we hold back. Before we know his love. For fear of being hurt. For fear of being wounded, of disappointed, of let down, used. But having known his love, we find the courage and freedom to love others. To embrace others until the stranger becomes friend and the friend becomes family. We find the true freedom to trust him. When we discover how deeply he loves us, Scripture calls it a mystery. Not as a a mystery that can't be solved, but it is a mystery that has to be revealed. And when he reveals that love to us, when we see it, when we hear him call our name, there is something about it that opens up the possibility for us to trust him. And it's scary at first. Well, it's, it's scary all the way through. But he he gives us the freedom to trust. But many of us, we're like Bobby. Bobby has has an interesting tattoo that most of us wouldn't have the courage to get. Bobby has a tattoo of her own face on her arm. But the the tattoo of of her own face has this banner that kind of partially covers her face. And on it, it says, hopeless romantic. (laughs) But not like in hopeless romantic, as in, I just love the gushy feelings, I love the idea of love and Hallmark movies and all of that. More if she were to describe it to you, she would say, all my life, I've been looking for true love and never been able to find it. And that's why it feels hopeless to me. All my life, I've been looking for true love. And so many of us have lived our lives looking for what can't be found in another human being. For what can't be expressed by anyone but God. But is always expressed by God. In every sunrise, in every every bird song, in every wave that crashes, in every beautiful sunset, is the God of all creation expressing his love for you. His, his, undying, his, his, his willingness to do whatever it takes to show you his love, to continue to find you. It has been the very story, because not only is it expressed, but, but true love will always be expressed. So listen to me, men, especially. You can't, like, you can't not say it. It always needs to be said. Okay? I mean, you can have a marriage and not say I love you. It just probably won't be a very good one. So learn to say it and show it. And that's what we see in in the story of Scripture from beginning to end is a God who has to show his love. 
And, and, and see, the thing about love when it's expressed is it always brings people together. Do, do we see in Scripture this, this God who can't stay away from humanity? Like Sometimes we imagine God as like high and lifted up and, and out there somewhere, big white beard and flowing robes of light and his lightning bolt or big stick or whatever it is he carries. And, and he's out there somewhere and doesn't really have much to do with this. And yet, if we were to look from beginning to end in the story of the Bible, every chapter is about a God who can't stay away from humanity. A God who is engaging and intercepting and getting involved with and and doing everything he can to demonstrate his love. Here's another path to help you know how to love one another. So like we think of the Ten Commandments as some kind of set of rules, but it's really, here's a pathway to help you fix humanity that you've broken up so badly. Right? If you honor God, learn to rest a day out of the week. Like we're, psychology's catching up, the workforce catching up. Hey, we need to rest. Our bodies need to rest. And God said it from the very beginning. Oh, don't lie to one another. Don't steal from one another. Don't kill each other. A simple pathway to restoring humanity. And yet we couldn't do it. And we keep finding ways to reject and, and, and greed seems more attractive and lust seems more attractive and power seems more attractive. At least if they don't seem more attractive, they seem more viable. And so we, 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 we strive and we bow down at the altars of these idols and we live our lives by their rules. And God keeps inviting us out and keeps inviting us out until ultimately it is Jesus who comes and lives and dies and is raised again to offer a pathway to a new way of being human. And even then, he says, listen, I know you can't do this all by yourself. And that while I've broken the chains and broken the power of these idols, they still exist. They still call out to you. So I'm going to give you my spirit within you every moment of every day to give you the strength you need. To live into this new identity. To live into who you were created to be from the very beginning. He always is trying to come close to us. To draw near to us. He's promised that if we'll draw near, if we'll just open up our eyes, he's drawing near. He's getting close. And then the third thing that love always does. Love always brings life. It revitalizes. It brings out the best. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I love the message, or the paraphrase. It it says that he's bringing the best out of you. God's desire is the common good of all humanity. God's desire is for you to be all that you were created to be. And we'll find out next week in that fourth tattoo, you were created for his glory. You were created for glory. But we don't see it. We don't see it. And so when we go back to Isaiah 43, in verse 4, it says this. You are precious. You are precious. It has to do with this, this weightiness of our existence. It has to do with this, this rare, exceptional reality. And you are precious. Valuable. We see ourselves and we treat ourselves so often like garbage, as unvaluable, as unworthy. We look, we look in the mirror and we see those things. 
He not only says, are you precious, he says, you are honored, esteemed, lifted up. And how does he describe? He says, you are precious and you are honored in my sight. So the eyes in scripture, they're the, the source of perception, of discernment, of emotion. And God says, I see you. And you are precious and honored, valued, esteemed, worthy of everything I can give, including myself. See, when he talks about giving Egypt and and Cush and Saba for you, um, imagine it as a metaphor. And imagine God, and, and he's got this great big cosmic wallet with all of the nations in his possession. Right? Yeah, I get it's a little bit silly, but, but stay with me. And all of the nations are like a different bill. Some of greater value than others. But Egypt, at this time, the greatest nation the world has ever known. More powerful, larger, more wealth than any nation at this time. Right? So if, if Egypt was a bill in your wallet, it would be that $100 bill. And Israel was nobody. Slaves. They're like a dollar. And he says, I even give Egypt. I give everything, give it all for you. I lay down peoples for you, the peoples, Jesus himself for you. You in his eyes are worthy of the sacrifice of his very self for you. He lays down his life, takes it all on on the cross, overcomes death and and, and is raised for you. Because you are precious and valued in his sight. And I know when you look in the mirror, when I look in the mirror, that's not usually what I see. I see my failure. I see my sin. I see my disappointment. I see my shame. All the ways that I feel like I'm not worthy. And we look at ourselves and we don't see what he sees. And Easter is the invitation again and again to see ourselves as he does, as one he was willing to lay down everything for, one who he says, you are mine, I will be with you, you are loved, you were created for my glory. He created us and he formed us. He has believed in us. He has loved us from before the beginning. And we have rejected him and and tried to remake ourselves. We've not believed in him as he's believed in us. We've ignored or denied his love or run from it. Looked for it everywhere but in him. And so he invites us to see again. The philosopher Kierkegaard, he writes that when humans are, are overwhelmed by their finitude or by, by our limits, by what we can't do, by our unworthiness, and and by our blemishes. He says we lose sense of our God-given greatness. He says we need to be reminded lest we forget. I love this. But after all, he says, we are created in God's image. Isn't that enough? And so Easter is the invitation to accept The vision of you that God sees and not the one you think you see in the mirror. They're going to help me out and and, and pass out 
some things for you. We're going to receive communion, but in a little different way this morning. In just a moment, it'll come by. There's some baskets. In each of the baskets are bread and grape. If you'll take one piece of bread and one grape and pass the basket along, once everyone's received we'll, or, or gotten, we'll receive it together, eat it together. But it's strange. I get it. Like I said a minute ago, we're Christians. We do strange things. This is one of them. We eat bread and, and juice. Or, and this, we kind of rewound it all the way back to the grape. It's weird. Here's what we believe and why we do it, though. So Jesus, in that last week, just before they were in the garden, in fact, he, he's with his disciples, his followers. And he, and he says to them, listen, things are about to unfold that you don't understand. I'm going to lay down my life. My body's going to be broken. My blood's spilt. But it's all going to be for you. It's the, it's the way that I can show all of humanity the depth of my love. It's the, it's the way that I can open up a new life, a new possibility, a new beginning. It's the only way to give humanity their humanity back and to demonstrate what it looks like. It looks like those willing to lay down their lives for others. Those who will choose to save others instead of save themselves. But it's all for you. This is after this happens, and this this you begin to invite people into this new life. And, and, and there will still be the enemies all around. Greed and lust and power and fear. And you proclaim an allegiance to me. And, and, and whenever you get together and celebrate, listen, listen, let me just take a little time out from this whole little communion speech thing. This is not the celebration of Easter, right? If it was, it'd be a pretty lame celebration, right? We just stood and sang and prayed and heard somebody talk for a few minutes. That's not a very good party. You can smile. It's okay. The fact that you're not smiling just says you, you get it. This is not our celebration of Easter, right? This is our reminder, our rehearsal of the story so that when we go out, we can celebrate Easter. So every time you sit around a table with, with friends that were once strangers, it's a celebration. Every time you, you celebrate new birth, every time you, you mourn death, every time we, we give of ourselves, every time we invest in others, every time we overflow, every time we grow and learn and take a new step, that is a celebration of Easter. Every time we refuse greed, every time we refuse lust, every time we refuse power and lay down our lives, that is a celebration of Easter. That is what brings life and, and continues to tell the story. This is us just reminding ourselves whose we are and who we are. We tell the story again. And Jesus said, listen, it's going to be hard to remember the story. Even harder to live it out every day. You need to remember that I'm with you. And here's one of the ways you do that. Is, is, is that you, you eat of the bread and you drink of the cup. And there's symbols of my body broken and my blood spilled. There are symbols of what I did on the cross for you. There's symbols of hope. That not even death can take away. There's symbols of hope greater than every fire and every flood and every circumstance that you face. They are symbols of hope and the truth that I am with you and I love you. You are precious and honored. 
They are symbols of choosing to step out of the chains. You see, he looks at us in the mess, in the brokenness, in the lust and greed and striving for power. He looks at us even as we we strive and bow down to those idols. And he says, you are precious and honored and I love you. And I've broken all those chains. But even as we sit there, we feel the weight of those chains around our wrists. We sit in the prisons of our own making, even though the doors have been opened, even though the locks have been broken. And though he sees us there and he loves us, he says, I died to give you new life. You can walk out of that. I will be with you. I love you. And you'll never walk that road alone. And so we gather and we remind each other whose we are and who we are. And we find the strength to go again and keep celebrating Easter every day in every opportunity that we get. And this little meal, this bread and this grape, they're reminders that he's opened the door, broken the chains, and made a way for new life. And so we eat as those reminders. And I'm going to pray, and then we'll eat the bread and the grape together.